What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain for many years now, Onnit has set the lofty, aspirational goal of total human optimization. So we're always looking for the different ways that we can add pieces to that puzzle. And one of the pieces that we were missing was directly influencing mitochondrial health and optimization. And why is that important? Well, mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. It's where we actually get our cellular energy from. And when you have healthy, strong, optimized mitochondria, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel it throughout your entire body. You're going to feel it in your training. You're going to feel it in your thinking. You're going to feel it in what you're able to accomplish in a given day. So we put together a formula designed to directly stimulate and support your mitochondria. And if you don't know anything about that, I encourage you guys to try it because that's the beauty of this formula. That's the beauty of total mitochondria is that when you take it, you're going to notice it. You're going to feel what it feels like to have more of that cellular energy. The ingredients we chose are the best, most researched ingredients we can find, and I think this is going to be a super strong addition to anybody's supplement regimen. It's worth giving a shot. Definitely check it out. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey. You can save your 10%. We also just launched a new product, Total Keto Daily. Now, exogenous ketones, ketones that you can take from outside of your body in supplement form, bring them into your body. That's one of the best and fastest ways to feel the effects of having ketones in your system. We formulated it to be easy on the stomach, to provide maximum effect, and it tastes good. So if you're at all interested or have heard about exogenous ketones, it's something that I use every day. It's something that Rogan uses all the time, something that so many of the top performers I know use. Check it out, onnit.com slash Aubrey. Get your 10% locked in by going to that page and then navigate to the new Total Keto Daily. All right, buckle up, everyone. This podcast is with Shinzen Young. He's been teaching mindfulness and meditation for over 50 years. He's an ordained monk, and he also comes from a mathematics background, which is completely unique in this field. And the way that he's able to put things like happiness, suffering into mathematical equations and have some of the best actionable steps to take to access these states of mind and also bring things to your life like joy. So I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. It's a lot. Pay attention and let us know what you think. Well, it's a real honor to be sitting across from you because uh, as I was just explaining, um, one of the things that you put out, and I think it was around the time you wrote your book in 2006 on pain, was a piece that you wrote on the difference between pain and suffering. 
And that was, you know, 12 years ago or something. I think that I read it sometime around the release of that book. And it was one of those guideposts in my life where it made such a significant impact because it was a brand new concept for me to separate the difference between pain and suffering that it was something that stuck with me forever and i remembered you and remembered that piece and it kind of kept up and i've always thought you know one day you know i want to have a podcast <laughs> to talk about it because it was a really significant um a really significant thing in my life so if you want um instead of me trying to summarize it uh if you could just Talk to us about the difference in your mind between sure. pain and suffering. Uh, I'm assuming we're on the air. We're on right? the air. Okay, yeah. great. Um, this is one of the early lessons that I learned in my own meditation. I had to learn because I was uh, in a monastery in Japan doing the mm -hmm. uh, old school, uh, you know, Zen style training, and. Um, they would make you sit uh, for long periods of time and you weren't allowed to move, not at all. It was like a zero tolerance policy. And I was always very wimpy as a kid. Mm -hmm. My mother um, said that I was what was called a difficult baby. I you know, would cry and become fussy uh, with the slightest discomfort. And I can remember, um, by earlier years, just being preoccupied with <clears throat> avoiding any kind of physical or, for that matter, emotional discomfort. Mm. Um, so my nature was to um, have to escape from pain. And here I am in this sort of samurai boot camp training situation um, where you either have to get with the program or you... I mean, no one's holding you hostage. You can leave, but it just, it's very bad form to leave, right? right? So I would have to sit there for long periods of time. My teacher insisted that I sit in the full lotus. And, you know, after an hour in the full lotus, my whole body would be just shaking with pain. Sure. Um, and um, <clears throat> what happened was that I started to notice that the pain is one thing and my reaction to the pain is something else. Mm. Now, <clears throat> I like to define mindfulness or broadly meditation as the acquisition and application of uh, three uh, attentional skills, concentration, power, sensory clarity, and equanimity. So sensory clarity entails making discriminations. Um, if you sit there and you are not allowed to pay attention to anything else, you just have to sit with what's coming up. Um, you st start to notice differences that most people don't notice in daily life. You make discriminations. Mm. So I started to notice that the physical discomfort was one thing, and my uh, resistance to that discomfort was something else. They're actually different things. Yeah. And as I say, for most people, as soon as the discomfort is there, the resistance is also there. So pain equals suffering um, in their experience. But what you begin to see if you sit still for long periods of time is the pain is one thing. Your resistance to the pain is an independent dimension. And when you have the pain without the resistance, it still hurts, but it doesn't cause suffering. Mm. 
as much suffering. Uh, so you um, realize that suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance uh, to a linear approximation, which, uh, because, you know, I have a background in math, so people <laughs> with a background in math listening in, okay, this is a linear approximation, as we often do in the sciences. So uh, <clears throat> there's two ways to reduce the suffering. It, you can reduce the pain, fine. It's like area of a rectangle, right? Sure. Length times height. Um, but let's say you can't. Well, you can reduce the, the perceived suffering by reducing the resistance, and that is a trainable skill. And that is part of the equanimity skill. So the clarity skill of mindfulness allowed me to discriminate. The pain is one thing, the resistance is something else. The equanimity skill is the training away of the resistance. So it's be, uh, training the perceptual circuits to be more fluid in how they function. So I would sometimes drop into equanimity spontaneously and notice it. Now, actually, everyone uh, drops into equanimity during the day, but they don't notice it because we're too distracted by what's going on. Yeah. So once again, the effect of sitting still for long periods of time, you start to notice when you spontaneously drop into equanimity, meaning some part of you deep down just stops fighting with the discomfort. So it's equanimity is similar to acceptance in a certain well, way? <clears throat> there's no good word for equanimity. The answer to your question is yes, it's similar to acceptance. Um, but all of the words that we might use for equanimity carry baggage that are confu that confuse people. If we say equanimity, it might sound like non-expressiveness. If we say acceptance, it might sound like indifference to external conditions. Mm. And um, uh, equanimity is not non-expressiveness, uh, and it is not indifference to external conditions. Also, some person might think that, uh, well, what would be some other synonyms that people would use? Um, maybe. Um, uh, uh, balance or something like that. Sure. Um, but then again, once again, you might think, well, that would entail, if I keep my emotional balance, then I'm suppressing my emotions. Mm. So most of the, every word that would be a synonym for equanimity carries some connotation that's misleading. Mm. If you say acceptance, it says, well, then you just accept what goes on in the world and you don't care, it's indifference. Equanimity is a relationship to sensory experience. So it's acceptance of sensory experience, right. but not necessarily acceptance of uh, who's running the country or um, whether you're a success or failure in business and so yeah. forth. So what happened was that I started to notice, okay, the discomfort is one thing. Uh, the fighting with the discomfort is something else. And then I would also start to notice that when that fighting with the discomfort would spontaneously lessen, the perceived suffering was less. The more I noticed that, the more it happened, that creates a positive learning or positive feedback loop, uh, which then led to an insight, uh, an aha experience. Oh, uh, pain might be um, unavoidable sometimes, 
but uh, suffering is optional. <laughs> we have the option to train ourselves to experience pain with its full poignancy, um, but with somewhat less or dramatically less suffering. So the pain is still part of the richness of being a human. But the problem with pain, which is that it uh, can um, uh, uh, overlay or um, block our contact with the perfection of the moment, um, that, that goes away. So we get to have our cake and eat it too. It's still part of the richness of being a human, but it no longer uh, blocks the perfection of the moment or uh, drives and distorts behavior. Now, as you know, I have a background in the math and science. So one of the things mathematicians and scientists always want to do is something called generalization. So generalization doesn't mean that uh, we make it vague. It means we make it bigger. We discover something in one domain, and then we see that it applies in broader domains. So that initial insight about physical pain carries over into emotional pain yeah. and into mental pain. And so this is um, a very deep and important insight. Absolutely. And then there's so many parts of that, you know, the first of which is having what you call the sensory clarity, which is being able to be the observer and actually witness what is happening from an impartial thing. Because when pain happens, sometimes you are the pain. You know, it's like you're you're not even observing the pain. You're you're just the pain. You know, and in that case, you're blinded. You're blinded by your innate responses to it, your fight or flight. I need to get up. I need to get out. You're you are the resistance embodied almost to a certain point. So the first part of that awareness, the sensory clarity, as you call it, is there. And then seeking that equanimity to reduce it. And I love how you make it uh, that mathematical equation because <laughs> it makes perfect sense. You know, and I think that's the path. Because as you said, pain is unavoidable. This is a part of every human's life. And it's easy to see. Like, for example, for me, a great example is when I feel like I'm getting sick, I have a massive amount of resistance to a very small pain impetus. Like, like the input of pain when I'm about to get sick is minor. A little taste in my mouth, a little tickle in my nose. But my resistance to that state and the fear of what might come is massive. So actually the suffering that I experience when I'm about to get sick is far greater than when I'm actually sick and realize, okay, here I am, I'm sick. And then the, the, snuff, the sniffles are there, the aches are there. But I don't have resistance to it. It's like, oh, well, I'm sick. You know, so the resistance has dropped so much that that state is actually a far better state actually being sick than being in resistance to the idea that I might get sick. You know, so we have all of these experiences. Same with if you're about to get your blood drawn, you know, in the moments leading up to the point where the needle pierces your skin and the nerves fire that signal that goes all the way up to your brain and says, pain, ouch. You know, that moment isn't so bad, but the moments leading up where you're white knuckled, like, oh no, what's going to happen? That's really where, that's really where the suffering is. And, and that is absolutely, you know, the optional part, the trainable part that we can transcend. And if we can get that down and just reduce pain to pain, man, I mean, that makes a massive difference. Makes a ability. difference in what we would call your base level of happiness. Yeah. Because relief from suffering is an important component in 
a person's base level of happiness. There's a bunch of subtle points in what you brought up, though. Mm-hmm. If you want, we can explore those. Yeah, but if, if you want to go in some other direction, we can do that also. Let's keep exploring. Um, so you, uh, you mentioned sort of like uh, being a witness separate separate from the pain mm. and then you mentioned like sort of being the pain mm-hmm. so it's sort of interesting because um the way that we express things can sometimes be confusing mm-hmm. for example um some people might say uh well equanimity actually is not creating distance but it's collapsing distance you you actually become the pain, but in the good sense, not in the mm. sense of identifying with the pain as a problem, but in the sense that because you're no longer separate from it, uh, it's no longer something that can hold, can't resist get, it if, get, you're sep- if you're not yeah, separate from get, it. Yeah, right. get to you. So there's two spatial metaphors for equanimity, and the important thing to remember is they're just metaphors. One is create distance. It's over here, I'm over here, it can't get to me. If that metaphor works for you, go ahead and use it. But do understand, equanimity is is not that metaphor, okay? The metaphor Mm -hmm. is not the reality. The equanimity is the sensory circuits not interfering with their own products, okay? What we see, hear, feel on the inside and outside, those are the products of our sensory circuits. Those circuits not jamming against themselves at a microscopic level. That's what equanimity is, its essence. But there are ways of describing it to people to to sort of make it, you know, uh, understandable. One of them that meditation teachers commonly use is the distance-creating metaphor that you Mm -hmm. mentioned. But you also use, like, the distance-collapsing. That can be a metaphor Mm -hmm. also. For example... um, uh, let's say I'm in the ring with Muhammad Ali, okay? Um, so how am I going to be safe? Well, either I constantly, you know, run away, creating distance so he can't punch me, or I hug him, right? Mm-hmm. That's another strategy that a boxer would use, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now he can't get that momentum of punching. So those are two ways you can oppositely directed metaphors for what is actually the same effect, which is right. not being vulnerable. So I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. Uh, and would you say both strategies can, and you, as you were, I think you were saying that both strategies can yield equanimity? Well, I would say that they're both ways of describing <clears throat> equanimity. Okay. So then it becomes confusing because some meditation teachers say you should create distance. Other meditation teachers say you should collapse the distance and become it. They're actually talking about exactly the same thing (laughs) using diametrically opposite language. And then students get confused. Is this teacher right? Is that teacher right? You know, et cetera, et cetera. When actually they're uh, just giving different metaphors for the exact same phenomenon. Interesting. So the other thing is, Remember I said about broadening and generalizing? So it's not just physical pain. Uh, It's any kind of physical discomfort, like it's too hot or it's too cold, or you mentioned getting pricked with a needle uh, with a blood draw. So 
uh, Native people have ceremonies involving piercing, uh, sure. even hanging by your own flesh and so forth. The Sundance ritual. We'll call uh, that's ritual, exactly yeah. correct. Tied uh, to the willow tree. Huh? Tied to the willow tree or whatever tree they have available. Uh, it's yeah. a cottonwood tree. Cottonwood tree, yeah. yeah. Um, so um, if you were ever privileged to uh, be a supporter at a ceremony like that, you would see that um, all of the dancers, even though they don't have training in meditation, um, they all go into equanimity when it comes time to be pierced. The mm. ceremony bring, induces that in them. Right. Because you would think you're lying down um, uh, and you're allowing a couple guys to take, nowadays they use scalpels, but I mean, they use you know, knives. Flint back or something in, back yeah, in the day. Yeah. yeah, stone. It was back in the day. So they, they use surgical scalpels. Uh, but you're letting a couple guys cut into you. Put and, wooden pegs in there. And then put piercing pegs or eagle claws under through that. Um, and you would think it's a hundred people, there would be some grimacing, some screaming, some something. No. Everyone just is very calm, very relaxed, uh, just amazing to watch that kind of thing. So, but you know, the interesting thing is you mentioned the Sundance. The really hard part of the Sundance is not the being pierced. It's Although the, I'm not going to say that doesn't, yeah. It's what your body uh, feels like after a couple of days with no uh, food and water and it's 110 degrees mm. and you're without shade. There's an excruciating agony of exhaustion that's far, far more intense than getting cut. Yeah. And you have to, that's 24 7. Um, so there's the heat, and there's the, um, there is the, the thirst, and there's the exhaustion. Those are other forms of physical discomfort. And uh, the same formula works for all forms of physical discomfort, even the, um, the, the heat and thirst that would come with uh, one of these uh, shamanic, traditional sh shamanic uh, ceremonies. But then it generalizes further, as I mentioned. Uh, you might imagine, okay, I can see people have equanimity, uh, not fight with physical sensations, but what happens if I don't fight with emotional sensations? Um, what does that make me? You might think it will make you helpless and ineffectual if you surrender to your emotions as sensations. But actually, um, it, they if they're unpleasant emotions, they cause less suffering, but they still motivate and, and direct your behavior. But then you might think, okay, I can imagine not fighting with uncomfortable emotions in my body, but how about a state of confusion in my mind or negative mm. thoughts in my mind? It's a little hard to imagine that the same principle would apply there when you have equanimity with don't know, with doubt, indecision, confusion, and so forth. It begins to flow into a kind of wisdom mind. So when you have equanimity with physical and emotional body sensations, the body begins to flow into a kind of spirit energy. Well, it reduces fear dramatically. <laughs> and I think, you know, as, as you're talking, I haven't been through 
you know, the rituals that particularly involve physical pain. So I've, I've had a uh, sun dancer Porangi on the, on the show and we've talked about. Oh, you, had, you had a sun dancer on the yeah. show. Yeah. And so. Was you know, he, was he a native? Uh, no, he wasn't. So, he was kind of adopted into that culture. His mother was, um, his mother was, but his father wasn't. So I he think. was part, part, yeah. part Indian. Yeah. Do you and, know where uh, he, he did at his the dance? Four, at the Four Corners? There's oh, a reservation yeah, on the Four Corners. That's a very traditional dance. That's mm. right, the Four Corners dance. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, familiar with that ritual. And I think the only way that I can apply it to my life is, so the the pain of the scalpel and the pegs, right? That's a very, uh, it's a very acute and very understandable kind of, and very strong, but acute pain to a certain degree. And so, for example, I got into a car wreck recently this year oh and a guardrail split half of my face open Jesus. and it was a very acute <laughs> pain and i was actually able to apply equanimity very quickly very quickly to that and like know that ultimately this was a blessing i didn't know why this was a lesson i didn't know why yet but i was at, at a deep peace with it i was sorry that my family would have to take care of me and then i wouldn't be able to do my work and that was the only feeling like oh sorry everybody you know i in this wreck and now i'm not gonna be able to do anything but i had really equanimity in my body but the things that are so that would be like the piercing but the things that are that are longer in general like the chronic, exhaustion the yeah. chronic you know like the little things that i'm worried about the mental angst the anxiety about this the stress about this the little minor nagging pains that's where i really have the hardest time finding equanimity it's like the big thing like if i got shot with a, a bullet you know, like I would, it's almost like it would force me there because it's so acute and so strong. I'm like, oh, I better find equanimity here because this thing really hurts and I got to apply my skills, my concentration and all the, all the things that I need to do to create that and get to that state as I did with the car wreck. But then for me, I think the next path is to find equanimity with all the rest of the stuff. That, that's right. And remember, it's suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance, which is sort of a good news, bad news. Because if you have small pain but big resistance, your perceived suffering can be very large. And you're in a constant state of it. That's right. Yeah. So uh, that's the generalizing. So it it uh, so when you have equanimity with confusion in the mind, the mind begins to flow at some point and turns into a wisdom function. And when you have equanimity with sensations in the body, they also begin to flow. The runner's high and the lifter's pump mm. are actually um, uh, states of the beginning of the spiritualizing of the person's body. Uh, it's the it's a little taste. Uh, you worked out and you had to have equanimity with those sensations. Mm -hmm. Then afterwards, you notice that your body is more bubbly or fluid, and mm. you're, that get, puts you into a good mood. Well. What happens when people meditate is uh, any and all uh, challenges to the body um, turn into uh, a, this en a dramatic endorphin rush um, that they don't describe so much in terms of the pleasure of it. We describe it rather in terms of experiencing the uh, going from the body being a particle to the body being a wave. So the runner's high and the lifter's pump, if experienced in a meditative way, um, actually become a, a, a complete 
paradigm shift for what your body is. Mm. Uh, it be literally becomes spiritualized. Uh, and that's 24-7. That's sort of the idea. But now, here's an important thing. The same formula in reverse applies to pleasure. We can go even broader. So when you have pleasure with equanimity, you might think, well, that will reduce something. Well, it does. It reduces the craving and drivenness. But it also gives you something. It turns out that pleasure with, with grasping doesn't deliver the fulfillment that it potentially could. Because there's so, fear in the grasp. Well, right? there's actually, it's a little different. It's not really the fear. It's that there's a subtle tension in the flow of the pleasure. Mm. Once again, you can actually see this. Take something that's dramatic, like the act of physical love, mm. where you get one wave of pleasure after another, after another, hundreds of individual waves of pleasure. You, If you pay close attention which most people don't because <laughs> there's just too much distraction. Right. But if you play close attention and you know what to look for, you'll notice maybe one out of 10 of those pleasure waves is a little bit different. It's not different qualitatively. It's not different in terms of intensity, but there's less coagulation around it just spontaneously. And that one out of 10 of those pleasure waves delivers more fulfillment. Mm. And if it's just those pleasure waves that are, if you have equanimity with all every one of the hundreds and hundreds of pleasure waves, that's when you have the experience of all the, uh, the room is shaking. Um, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's not just the normal experience uh, it's a spe it's a, like uh, the poet Goethe talked about a higher lovemaking. Yeah, he's got this poem. Yeah, yeah, and so it works with pleasure. The pleasure delivers more fulfillment when you have equanimity. The pain causes less suffering. So, two very important fundamental types of human happiness: um, relief from discomfort of all sorts, physical, mental, emotional, and elevating fulfillment with the pleasures of all sorts, once again, physical, emotional, or mental. Mindfulness practice uh, through the combination of the ability to concentrate and then the clarity and the, and the equanimity especially, uh, re both the same skill set both reduces suffering and elevates fulfillment. So, it's very efficient. It's yeah. a very efficient way to optimize happiness. So let's let me go into that. So let, let's talk about the act of lovemaking and the grasping that might be there. And what comes to mind immediately is to me is that obsession with performance, right? Like if you're worried, if you're in pleasure, obviously, because lovemaking involves a lot of pleasure, but like if you're grasping for a, a certain performance ideal. You know, like you're reaching and that's where your mind is and that's where the tension is and that's where you're trying to, well, I hope, I hope I'm pleasing. I hope I'm doing a good job. Am I doing a good job? How is this, you know, it's just like grasping for more rather than this surrender to that moment, right? The, the experience of sex in those two different scenarios is vastly different, you know, and the one, it, you're still getting the physical input of pleasure, but 
it's not the thing that you're talking about. So I would claim that what you're giving is an example of the importance of concentration power. <laughs> okay? You're concentrating on um, the essence of what you're doing as opposed to being distracted by the judging mind. Mm. So can you see now how the three attentional skills reinforce each other, they work together? Um, it's quite elegant, actually. Yeah. I would say that if someone were to ask me why meditate, and I, I, use the, I use the word mindfulness for meditation when it's partnering up with science. So the modern mindfulness movement, I would say, is meditation or contemplative practice co-evolving with science. That's my definition. Um, and I think of myself as a mindfulness teacher, so someone who has both a scientific perspective but believes that the cultivation of those uh, attentional skills are key to human happiness. So um, uh, when you bring these three skills together, um, they are central to optimizing all dimensions of human happiness. So if someone asks me, why should I, quote, meditate or learn mindfulness, which is the modern form of meditation, why should I do that? My uh, one concept answer is to optimize your happiness. Mm -hmm. Then if they say, what do you mean by happiness? Are you, you mean uh, I should be in a good mood all the time, et cetera, et cetera? I'll say, no, I'm going to... Um, analyze happiness for you into many types and levels, create a kind of periodic table of happiness uh, that covers everything. And then we're going to show you how these attentional skills individually and collectively will help you optimize each one of those sort of uh, uh, elements of happiness. So one is one basic type of happiness is reduction of suffering. Another basic type of happiness is elevation of fulfillment. Um, I just showed you plausible mechanisms whereby these uh, cultivating these attentional skills will help you. And the, el el the elegance of the whole thing is that um, it's the same skill set that both reduces suffering and elevates fulfillment and does that for physical, mental, and emotional. Um, and it's the same exercises, the same techniques that develop this, the same skill set. So the same meditation technique that I might teach you, you can apply both to reducing suffering and elevating fulfillment. When you talk about consciousness, and that, that all makes perfect sense, and when you talk about concentration, I mean, so interestingly, I think there's this place where concentration and lack and almost utter lack of concentration also meet in this kind of strain you know like it's like a circle because the it sounds like especially when you know again using sex as the metaphor the concentration is this is like a the release of everything that isn't that thing that that's actually happening that's it a could, good way it, to think about and it. it could be with food too like if you're taking a bite of food and like the best way to enjoy food is to be present with the food and like let the flavors hit your tongue and like let not have the hunger that's going to drive you to get to that second bite as fast or the time pressure or the, all these other things, but like be concentrating on the food. But it's also a releasing of everything else 
you know, except for what is actually happening. So it's this kind of unique dichotomy of, of how well, concentration can, can works. Can you see that you just described two of the skills working together? The equanimity, the letting the distractions just do what they want to do in the background, mm -hmm. um, helps with the concentration. Mm -hmm. They reinforce each other. So that's a good insight on your part. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's, yeah, I mean, that's, this is the, this is now we're getting into the formula for happiness. You we know, are really getting in a, into what human beings have been talking about ever since they were talking about anything. The earliest Greek philosophers, yeah. it was not an abstraction. Philosophy was aimed at uh, finding eudaimonia, which in Greek meant flourishing or well-being. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that in the West, what those ancient philosophers lacked, great as they were, um, they didn't know that attentional skills could be systematically cultivated. Mm -hmm. That was the piece that was missing from the West, but present in the East, mm -hmm. particularly in India. So in my fantasy world, what happens is I get to go back to Athens in the golden age. <laughs> um, uh, I get to hang out with Aristotle and Plato and Socrates uh, uh, and such. But I get to know everything I currently know about meditation. <laughs> yeah. And so I plant the seed for uh, the uh, contemplative practice, systematic contemplative practice, which was so well developed in India. I plant the seed for that. Uh, and then At the, the roots of Western world history <laughs> takes, a, takes a different turn. So there's this great painting by uh, Raphael, um, I think uh, maybe around uh, 1510 right at the height of the Renaissance, and a few decades before the Protestant challenge to the Catholic Church. So it was a sort of magic period there. Pope Julius II, for his library, commissioned Raphael to make these paintings that showed the integration of um, uh, the West, uh, pre-Christian West with the then current Christian West, as exemplified by the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and what's cool, if you look at that painting, is that uh, uh, they can identify many of the philosophers in that painting, mm -hmm. but there's one figure that is never identified. And the figure's rather large and very close to Aristotle. And to me, uh, looks very much like a Western Buddhist monk. Got a shaved head, it's got an orange robe. Now, it's unintentional, but symbolically, see, th that painting is called the School of Athens nowadays. Mm -hmm. Famous, one of the most famous uh, yeah, I recall can it. canonical paintings of the West. Um, that painting was supposed to represent um, uh the um, the integration of all the world's philosophies with Christianity. Um, the idea being that uh, Christianity doesn't appear in the painting, but it's implied um, symbolically. Um, 
So the idea was that, well, there's all the, the, you know, there's the greatness of ancient Greece. Um, and we can see if we want a unity there. Uh, Aristotle is gesturing a gesture of peace like this, okay, to all the people there. There it is. Isn't that a cool picture? Mm -hmm. You can show it with, on the podcast. Yep. So, oh yeah, that's, this is great. Can I make it larger? Yeah, okay, check it out. There's Aristotle, and some people say he's pointing to the earth, and Plato is pointing to the ideals, you know, that's in cool. heaven. Yeah. But it's known from uh, Roman iconography that, that that gesture with the handout like that was a gesture of peace. So he's sort of saying we can integrate all this. Um, now, uh, uh, Heraclitus here, who has the face of Michelangelo, he is um, uh, he's on this block here, not even paying attention to it. And there's a metaphor from the Old Testament about the... Um, the block of stone that was uh, not uh, was uh, everyone ignored, and then they finally just realized it was so central. That actually stands for Christianity mm. uh, in this, and that's well-established uh, iconography. So the idea is here is Aristotle is sort of saying we can integrate all of these philosophies, and you'll notice that they have uh, a Muslim. Averroes, uh, where is he? Right over here, you see the turban. And uh, Zoroaster is actually over here, this guy. So there, there is, from the Middle East, it's not just Greece. Um, so um, what I always imagine is that, um, uh, that this guy here, take a look. He's got an yeah, orange him. robe and a shaved head. He yeah. looks very much to me like what uh, a Western Theravada monk would look like. Okay. Yeah. So I always, I'm sure Raphael didn't know, but who knows, you know, poets can, uh, artists can see in the dark, but you know, they can, sometimes they channel stuff that even they don't know. To me, that represents what they were really lacking. What they were really lacking was the knowledge of systematic training of attention. Mm -hmm. that was so well-developed in India, um, better than anywhere in the world, and then influenced China and then the rest of Asia. Um, so in my mind, the great unification is um, that uh, it would include uh, meditation techniques drawn from India, for example, from Buddhism, from Southeast Asia, the Satipatthana, which is the basis of uh, this modern mindfulness movement that is now taking root in the West. So I see this as applying 500 years, almost to the decade, 500 years later. Uh, can I show one other thing there? So remember that in this traditional iconography, um, uh, the logos, as in the Gospel of John in the beginning, was the word, the, the plan that God had from the beginning, so Heraclitus was the first to use the word logos uh, to mean uh, sort of the deep principle of nature. So they have Heraclitus 
like literally leaning on the Christian logos without realizing it. Okay, uh-huh. that was the message. But I take this block to mean something else. Okay, this of course is my personal mm-hmm. reading or interpretation. To me, what the a block represents is two squares that are connected, and I, in my mind, when I think of uh, science, I think of the scientific method. And there are four elements to the scientific method, mathematical description, uh, or uh, let's just say, uh, yeah, description, um, asking interesting questions in the form of a hypothesis, doing experiments, analyzing data. So when I think of the scientific method, I think of this square. So to me, the other thing that was missing was uh, Aristotle had started science but he never completed science because he didn't know about the experimental method. So in my mind, when I see that picture, uh, the block to me represents modern science. Sure. And then the guy in the orange robes (laughs) represents the Eastern meditative tradition. And then we we have the whole Western canon. And I see that, that the modern mindfulness movement is in fact the convergence that Raphael was symbolizing to Pope Julius II hmm. of, you know, we can have all this. Uh, you want to well, see? Well, that's the opp- This is the opportunity we have now, right? Yeah, like it's the opportunity we have now is point. to bring all of this together in a way that we never have before, because our ability to communicate and travel and access these bodies of knowledge and advance these bodies of knowledge with our own practice, experience, and the that kind of. Da Vinci effect, as Robert Greene says, where you're drawing on multiple different disciplines to actually improve the singular discipline that you've had, you know, so that um, art That's can That's an interesting phrase. And, um, I am not familiar with that. Yeah, the Da Vinci effect is what Robert Greene talks about. I am in his, not uh, familiar with Robert Greene. Yeah, he wrote a book called Mastery. And, um, and really, you know, he was saying that one of the reasons why da vinci was so masterful was his breadth of knowledge of so many different disciplines fascinating and how he would be able to use those disciplines to improve the primary discipline and that's something that he advises for everybody said like the more you know about the world like don't just focus on the one thing singularly that you can do the more you folk you know learn about other elements like like in this painting all of the other you know, ideas, philosophies, canons, all of that, the more that it can enhance your primary discipline by drawing in the wisdom. Maybe that's why I've been successful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I do the meditation, but I also have the math and science. That's great. And so you're, you're embodying that kind of convergence, which actually enhances both. Like the way that you're able to formula formulaically describe these things is in my mind, you know, an advancement of the understanding of the field, and that come from harnessing some of your mathematical scientific so, background. So I have a question: um, Is this an influential book? It uh, is. Um, and when you, uh, in for what uh, community, what uh, types of people would tend to read that? Well, book? he also wrote a book called "The Forty Eight Laws of Power," which was one of the most widespread books for entrepreneurs um businessmen athletes anybody i mean that was probably his breakout book and he's been one of the top best-selling authors for a long time really so, this is, uh, so i'm taking notes here yeah because uh, yeah. this is very interesting well because this is profoundly true what mm-hmm. you just said uh, having a name for it is kind of cool can we get the school of athens back 
because you mentioned Da Vinci. I'm mm -hmm. going to show you something. Cool. So what Raphael did is he populated this with actual people that lived um, uh, in uh, uh, the Italian Renaissance times. It's well known that um, Heraclitus is um, sort of uh, uh, his uh, rival, Michelangelo. Mm -hmm. um, that's the face of Michelangelo, it's believed to be. But if you look carefully at uh, Plato, he has the face of Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> and by the way, um, Raphael himself is in the picture, hiding over here in the corner, and it's so clever. Uh, if you, let's see here, uh, where is it? There he is right there, right? Uh, you're getting close, that's right. That's right where I'm pointing. See this guy? He's looking at the viewer of the picture. And collapsing and you, the fourth wall. <laughs> well, and, and if you look at the look on his face, he's saying, look what I did. What do you, what do you think? Okay, uh, let me show you something else. Okay, it's just like so cool. So um, Da Vinci is actually here. Um, that's Plotinus. Um, so let me show you this one, apropos of a more modern way of thinking. See this very central woman? Uh-huh. I mean, she definitely gets your attention, right? Yep. So that's Hypatia, who is a, a famous woman philosopher of, uh, of the late a uh, antiquity, right when Christianity was coming to ascendance. And she was well-versed in all of the pagan philosophy, math and so forth she was a formidable uh enemy of christianity and uh, she was murdered by a christian mob um and raphael wanted to put her in the painting mm -hmm. and uh, the authorities at the vatican said no you can't put her and it was probably prejudice against women and it was, but it was also this other stuff. Right. So you know what he did? He claimed that's a guy, and he put a relative of the Pope's face on it. But that's Hypatia. Okay? <laughs> and he's flipping the uh, yeah, 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 subtly yeah. to his patron, right? Right. How cool is that? <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. And it's proto-feminist, <clears throat> in yep. a sense. Well, and, and as I was saying, like this is the now the world that we get to get to live in and uh, and draw on all these beliefs. But there's one thing. So I want to talk to you another thing. And when we're talking about happiness, I read a, a blog post that you did, and it was kind of taking the concept of like a loving kindness meditation and using that, and you turn that into a nurture positivity. Oh, that's uh, just my name for it. That's just your name. That's yeah. just so, a name. So yeah. that that idea of nurturing positivity, the actual, you know, the active intentional inculcation of joy and of feelings of positivity right and it's and it's this intentional practice because i think a lot of times we think that these feelings good feelings just come like uh like something wafting on the breeze that you have no control over and you can just smell it or not you know but it's the one of the great lessons is the ability to create you know yourself these feelings um and bring those forward and i think that's some of the idea of that loving kindness. And then, you know, I think your idea of the nurture positivity and the way that you broke it down uh, was really cool. Well, so actually, I want to get into that. Let, 
let me show you something. Okay. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to just pull it up. Sure. It just happens that Juliana and I were discussing this, so I have it with me. So um, I like to uh, classify things. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do, this probably won't show on the camera, but I can send something to you cool. that you can, whatever. But um, I created this thing I call Ultra, the Universal Library for Training Attention. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that it's divided into four quadrants. So I group all the meditation techniques that have ever existed into these uh, four qu basic quadrants of training. Now, what's interesting, and I believe if I do say so myself, rather elegant about this, is that all of these are unified. I call my approach unified mindfulness for mm -hmm. this reason. All of these are unified in the sense that we can show that every one of these forms of meditation practice um, develops the same core attentional skills. So there's something generic to all meditative traditions, East or West, ancient or modern. On the other hand, they do, they do represent different quadrants, different things you can do. So... In this quadrant that I call appreciation, you more or less just pay attention to whatever comes up. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people equate mindfulness with that, but for me, mindfulness is much broader. Mm -hmm. uh, over here is perceptual transcendence. What that means is you find um, a, a formless but complete... Um, source that precedes, follows, and pervades everything that you see, hear, or feel mm. on the inside or outside. So some people call that no self. Some people call that true self. Some people call it emptiness. Some people call it God. Some people call it nature. Uh, some techniques involve sort of just observing whatever comes up. Mm -hmm. Some techniques involve direct pointing to that primordial completeness that's in your uh, perceptual sense gates. Now, another thing that we can do is we can find that same completeness in your motor senses, in your movement, in your speech, even in how you think. Um, sometimes you probably had the experience of an action just happening of its own, and it was magic, creative, maybe saved your life. Mm. There was a kind of just happeningness to how you moved or something came up and some words just came through you and it was just the right thing. Sure. There was a just happeningness. You didn't speak it. It's self-organized. That's the primordial completeness or primordial perfection that underlies all movement, speech, thought, and so forth. So you can discover something like the perceptual uh, flow, formless flow, in your motor circuits. Mm -hmm. um, that's a direct pointing to sort of the source of your actions. This is a direct pointing to the source of your perception. But yet, there's yet one other thing that you can do. You can intentionally create positive habits of action 
in your thoughts, your emotions, and your behavior by nurturing positivity. So all of these ways of training contrast with each other, yet they're all unified in that they develop the same core skill set. I can show you that for every way of working, whether it's just observing what is, or whether it's a direct pointing to uh, primordial completeness that underlies perception, or the direct pointing to something like that that underlies your actions, mm. or intentionally cultivating habits of positive thought, positive emotion, making positive behavior changes by, say, visualizing perfect <clears throat> performance or visualizing recovery from substance or food issues and so forth. Um, these different ways of working um, are in contrast, but from another perspective, they all entail the development and application of a very simple attentional skill set. Yeah. So it's quite elegant, really. That makes a lot of sense. And interestingly, like, <clears throat> so I think of some of my practices, one of which in spontaneity. So training in that practice for me the best methodology i have is a practice called ecstatic dance ah yeah and so that is collapsing the impetus of the sound with your movement so that there's nothing no interference there so the movement is radically spontaneous and in conjunction with the sound that's coming you know so there's no judgment there's no thought there's no mind there's just movement that and there's the sound and then there's the movement and you get to that state and it is it is a certain form of transcendence it allows you to actually bring emotions through and reach you know different states of trance i mean trance using dance to create this kind of trance or transcendence is is a you know long time historical practice but now i think is gaining more popularity but it's interesting you know there's different and that's just so that's just focusing starting on that one square but eventually maybe getting to the center of all of those pieces in a certain way by just training that one practice of spontaneity you know you can reach you know a, a well state of mind. now this is interesting okay because there's a little bit of a good news bad news situation with what you're describing so remember to bring the conversation sort of full circle mm -hmm. when you were talking about um well i can deal with an acute special situation of pain but the sort of ordinary, daily kind of chronic thing that may not be all that special, um, that's really a very different thing to be able to sure. deal with that. So the good news is what you just said. The kinds of things that you describe, like uh, ecstatic dancing, they represent special situations yeah. where you can taste some spontaneity. I think you right. see where this is going. From the viewpoint of the, shall we say, professional meditator, um, we almost always see that uh, people stop there. They never do the much, much more challenging work of bringing that spontaneity into everything they do. Mm. Okay, that's a whole other endeavor. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, it's, I mean, in, and I, that makes perfect sense, but it still makes sense to train, you know, train, you can train in the special circumstance, just like you can train with the acute pain. It's still good training, but I think the mastery 
is what is really what you're getting to. The mastery is taking the lessons of ecstatic dance and having them, you know, diffuse into your life collectively and universally, you know, and the, and the lessons of mindfulness or meditation, that thing that you do on the cushion, you know, in the perfect setting with the right smells and the dead silence and the comfortable, you know, thing under your butt, like put that on the subway, you know, and get that or when you're walking or when you're taught, like, applying these collectively into life i mean that's that's the 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 goal really because then you don't need a special situation you don't need this ecstatic dance container to move spontaneously you don't need your cushion and your gongs to to be mindful you know you can actually be this way in ordinary life yes exactly so that's a very good insight (laughs) we actually have a website called life practice program that is dedicated to doing that in a systematic way. Mm-hmm. So what's the what is the best way like if you want to feel good about if you want to just bring positivity, you know, through like what is the what is the like the brass tack strategy to like actually I think it's the feel good because you talked about there's see good, hear good, feel good, be good, which is be good is kind of being the unification, but you go on a little bit to talk more about the feel good part because that's a real that's a real challenging thing. It's like, I think it's, it's easier to see things and see, oh yes, I'm learning from this or hear things like, oh, I understand where that's coming or however you want to see and hear it. It's a little bit easier, but the feeling of it. And I think the feeling of it is where it's, it's kind of hard. Cause if you feel a little bit shitty, you know, like it's hard to actually put those good feelings back in the place where the laughter comes from, you know, like back in that core center of your being. Yes. <laughs> I, I can make it specific. So we have a technique within the unified mindfulness system that we call feel good. And it entails um, creating and then focusing on pleasant body uh, emotions. So uh, joy, interest, love, gratitude, compassion, those types of flavors or just a general joie de vivre, the you know the 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 fun of being alive kind of thing. Um, so the idea is, well, it's concentration, clarity, equanimity, right? Mm-hmm. So the concentration we're focusing on those qualities in the body. Um, the equanimity, well, when other qualities come up, you just let them come up, but in the background. <laughs> so you don't fight with them, but you you keep bringing your attention back to the pleasant. So one way, there's uh, about a half dozen uh, sort of things you can do to uh, create pleasant emotion in the body. The easiest that anyone can do is just smile. Okay? <laughs> yeah, just smile. Yeah. Um, and as, uh, as uh, trivial as that may seem, if you bring a lot of concentration and clarity to the, to the smile, it becomes non-trivial and it may spread and start to fill more of your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing is, if nothing else, just smile and then focus <laughs> on that and then have equanimity with anything that would distract you from the smile. And then perhaps try to see how broad the smile can go into your body. Mm-hmm. Now, um, we might call that, uh, well, it's just smiling, right? Now, some people don't even need to smile. Some people that are uh, 
for whatever reason, maybe they've been trained actors and so forth, uh, or just people without training. Some people just have the ability to turn on pleasant emotion like a faucet. If you have that ability, great, but not everyone has that. Mm -hmm. So for the people that don't have that ability, well, you can, you can, if nothing else, smile. Another thing that you can do is you can use a thought, either words or images or both, to briefly sort of strike the emotional body bell. So if you think of the thought as being, if you think of an Asian style bell, and you think of the, like, the thought as being the striker, so you briefly strike your emotional body with a positive thought, and then see if it will resonate with you, for you for a while. Mm -hmm. And then if it completely dies away, you restrike it. So you can sort of uh, uh, trigger it with uh, a thought briefly, and then focus on the pleasant emotion in the body. The other thing that you can do is, if you are in a lot of tranquility, or you have a lot of fluidity, this is something that happens when people meditate for long periods of time. Um, they have states of um, sort of energy. I talked about the runner's high, the lifter's pump, and so forth. Those kind of energy states uh, are available on demand. Um, and tran tranquil states are available on demand. Well, tranquility states and energy states, uh, what I call flow states, or, but what you call chi in the martial arts, um, those are not pleasant emotion, but they easily support being in a pleasant <clears throat> emotion. So Yeah, and the opposite is true too. When you're exhausted and your vitality and your chi is low, it's actually harder. More challenging. More challenging. That's right. Yeah. But if you happen to have tranquility or fluidity available, then it's going to be easy to get the pleasant emotion, and then you selectively attend to that. Finally, you can trigger it from an external stimulus. You can just listen to music you like, right. or look at art that you like, or uh, uh, luxuriate in a hot tub, mm. or all three at the same time. And now it's going to be relatively easy. Of course, now those are training wheels. You have to do the work. Otherwise, you're just indulging in pleasure, which is fine, but it's not a, a meditation training. But if you do the work to maintain the same smiley, uh, uh, rosy uh, joy that you would have luxuriating in the hot tub and listening to you know your favorite music, if you're willing to do the work to maintain that, then that trigger is another strategy. Mm -hmm. So if you were listening carefully, I'm pretty sure I me mentioned exactly six things. I've got a blog on it for people's mm -hmm. reference. They can go to the internet, look up my name and uh, yeah. that topic. I think one thing people have to ask themselves, all right, so here's the strategy to feel good. But I think one thing people are unaware of, they don't have the clarity of their own mindset and their own mindset is a lot of times when you're feeling down, you you may think you want to feel better, but there's some part of you that doesn't. There's some part of you that maybe thinks that you deserve to feel down or that you should feel down or that there's a comfort in the victimhood of the feeling that you're clinging to or, or a release of responsibility in the in the feeling that you're facing. So, I think really one thing too is like, great, here's the, here's the strategy, but make sure like really ask yourself, do I want to feel good? And that's a big question because I think I've noticed it myself. There's times where I'm feeling down 
and I and I feel like I could smile and I could feel good, but for for whatever reason, many one of those other reasons that I just mentioned, maybe I really don't want to let myself feel good, you know. And that's a that's a delusion that we all have to. Well, it's true. Get past. Uh, people are often addicted to suffering. Um. Now let's say you try to do a feel-good strategy and it doesn't work. Well, the good news is that's not the only game in town. <laughs> okay, there's a yeah. lot of other things you can do that still will give develop the same attentional skills. Yeah, maybe you just deconstruct the feel bad, or deconstruct the I don't want to feel good. Uh-huh. by breaking it up into its components and then observing until that dissolves into energy. Uh-huh. The ultimate recycling. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and <clears throat> it's 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 crazy because we go through school and we learn all these facts and learn all of these different things that we have to memorize. But this is these are lessons in how to human. You know, like this is like how do you human That's an interesting verb. To yeah. human. Yeah. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> like, how do you human? But no, I mean, we have to, we're not, we're not taught this. But what's more important than how to human yeah, if yeah, you're a human you, being? You, you, you never got the user's manual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, yeah. And that's why mindfulness is so pervasive now. Yeah. It's the, it's the user's manual that you never got. Right. Yeah, we have to go, and we have to go search it, train it, rewrite the bad software programs that have come as surrogate users' manuals that don't work, and these other ideas that we're chasing after, and the externalization of our joy and happiness. Oh, if I get that car, I'll be happy. Oh, if I get that job, I'll be happy. Oh, if I get that girl, I'll be well, happy. That's part of it, but <laughs> there's a much bigger picture. Yeah, and then, yeah. then learning all of the actual genuine techniques to be able to feel all of these feelings and have that fulfillment and have that life without needing all of the other things because you can be able to cultivate it yourself you know find it within rather than finding it without i would to be honest not use the word rather than i would use say in addition in addition to yeah and is always better uh, than or (laughs) and is always better yeah to to human that's 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 great yeah well i think we're good huh I think we're pretty good. There was Uh, one last thing I wanted to... Go ahead. I'll try to do it quickly then. Yeah. Because we probably passed the hour, I'm thinking, considerably. Uh, Oh, okay. Eight minutes over. over. Uh, Well, the last thing was um, talking about capital E enlightenment versus lowercase e enlightenment. And you talk about about a little bit of that difference. And you talk about the the Japanese word kensho, which uh, which was something I was hoping you had just touch on briefly because i thought that was a cool distinction between a word that is also very charged you know to try to help people understand what that yeah word means. right we we actually somewhat touched on it um i mentioned uh that you could uh, get in contact with a kind of completeness that's always there uh that some people might call whatever, the true self or the no self, uh, but lots of other words are used. Mm. Um, You can get into contact with that by someone directly pointing you to it, but you can also get in contact with that by just observing the surface until the surface starts to show you what is underneath. So that's why we have these different quadrants of training. 
So uh, when a person is in persistent contact with that primordial completeness, and as I say, I don't care what you call it. You can call it God, you can call it nature, you can call it emptiness. Capital L, you can, love, yeah. Uh, you, oh, yeah, true love. Yeah. Leonard Cohen has a song, Love Itself. Um, call it whatever you want. Sure. When a person comes in contact with that and is able to maintain contact with that, we technically say that person is a stream enterer or in the Zen Stream entry is a term used in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Kensho is a term used in Japan. Ken means to see, and sho means nature. Uh, if you read the characters in Chinese, it would be jian xing. Jian means to see, like zai jian, <clears throat> see you again. And xing means your nature. So a person that has seen their nature and is in some persistent awareness of that We'd say they've had Kensho and, uh, or stream entry, or you might say enlightenment with a small e, mm. which is a good thing. Is that and, that, and is that Satori? Is that like well, a, a brief that's moment? Well, that's tricky. Different <laughs> teachers are going to use these words in different ways. That's, that's the one thing I would give everyone a heads up on. Uh, you have to be very careful with words. Some people will use the same word to mean rather different things. Yeah. Other people use different words for exactly the same thing. So it's, it's tricky. Um, Kensho in Japanese has the implication of the beginning. Satori might have an implication of a, a deeper integration. Uh -huh. But th this is sort of connotation rather than right. denotation. Satori means, satoru is the verb in Japanese meaning to wake up. Or, but it's more in the sense of catch on. Like, mm. you know, your partner was cheating <laughs> and you caught on. <laughs> that yeah. would actually be satori in Japanese. Uh -huh. Okay. It's one of the meanings. It's like you woke up to what was going on, yeah. right? So, woke up, woke uh, up to life. Yeah. So I would use... The teachers that I had in Japan, my early education in these things was all in the Japanese language. They tended to use uh, the word kensho to mean sort of the beginnings mm. of that. Yeah. So let's just say that there are some people that come to that quickly, suddenly, and some people it just sort of grows on them over years, maybe even decades of practice. But one way or another, you're able to touch that. That's good. I would call that enlightenment with a small e. Um, enlightenment with a big e is realizing the full potential of that. So you might think that between unenlightened and enlightenment with a small e, there's a lot of distance. But actually, that distance is not great relative to enlightenment with a small e versus enlightenment with a big e. It is feasible for most people if they follow the what I call the four pillars of practice, uh, retreat practice, life practice, get support, give support. Um, if you follow that with competent guidance for your life, it I'm not going to guarantee you'll have Kensho, but it's feasible mm -hmm. for ordinary people. Uh, 
someone who has fully realized the potential in that, that's, that's rarer, okay? Mm. That's a big deal. Because that's not just, okay, you know, I can sort of go into some sort of state when I'm in pain or confused. Um, it's that you, uh, um, oh, actually, here's the, I don't know if the camera can see it, but my T-shirt says Magic Robot. Magic Robot is cap Enlightenment with a capital E, okay? <laughs> Everything is just spontaneous in terms of contour. Mm. Everything, every movement, every speech, every thought, uh, every see, hear, feel um, arises for that person from the source. So it's actually like a robot in the good sense of robot. Sure. Spontaneous. Moves by itself. Automaton. Um, but it's a magic robot because your actions are admirable by the uh, canons of ordinary society. Um, so it entails massive positive behavior change, and it entails a call to service in one form or another. Mm -hmm. So enlightenment, so we, we talked about types of happiness. In my periodic table of elements, there's five basic types relief of su from suffering, elevation of fulfillment, understanding yourself at all levels, including the deepest, that's enlightenment with a small e, okay? Um, making positive behavior changes, skillful actions, and a call to service. If all of these are at the max, that's enlightenment with a big E. <laughs> yep, beautiful. That makes so, so much sense. Thank you so much. This is such a pleasure. Um, where would you like to direct people to go? There's so many resources that you mentioned and so many things. Where's the Can where's we introduce the Juliana, who's sitting over sure. there? Sure, of course. Hi. Hi. I'm Juliana Ray, and I run uh, the teacher training and the educational platform for Unified Mindfulness. So you can go to unifiedmindfulness.com, and that's where you get an education on this system and you get support uh, from our coaches. And if you're someone who likes to get under the hood and really understand this stuff the way you clearly do, then that's the place to go to check it out. Cool. And you guys have retreats as well, right? And yeah. Uh, Shinzen runs retreats. And we're actually running a big uh, online retreat called Immersion that's coming up in April where you can go if you've never been exposed to uh, extensive retreat training, you can go there and for five days, we're going to have a Zendo, a Zoom Zendo, uh -huh. uh, where you can practice with us and, and learn more about Shinzen's approach. Well, fortunately for me, I've never been able to get in full lotus, so you won't be able to hold me accountable <laughs> to sitting in full lotus. Oh, hey, I'll, no. I'll, I'll no be, no requirement to sit in full lotus. That is definitely not. It's all about the skill development, yeah, as Shinzen beautiful. said. So, yeah. Beautiful. Well, yeah. thank you both so much. That was That was amazing. And thanks, everybody. Goodbye. So if you guys are like me, you just finished this podcast and you want to dive a little bit deeper into Shinzen's work. So one place you can go is Shinzen.org. That's S-H-I-N-Z-E-N.org. And that will guide you to a lot of Shinzen's work. There's so much here to unpack. I'm looking forward to doing it myself and I'm looking forward to talking to you guys about it as well. And as always, go to AubreyMarcus.com, sign up for the newsletter, check out everything else we got, and I'll see you next week.